You are now listening to Out of the Blank. Welcome to Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with Corey Peterson. Yes, so, hello. <laughs> Corey, tell me a little bit about yourself. Okay, a little bit about me. So I am a licensed psychotherapist. I own a private practice with um, six clinicians that work with me um, that actually are just about to come on. I'm really excited for them to join. I have been in school for 10 years with no summer since 2009. I'm currently on my fifth college degree and first PhD. I also do corporate training. I really like cats. I can't whistle and I'm allergic to chocolate. So that's a lot of different things. But um, <laughs> it's, So how old are you exactly, Corey? I am 29. You're 29 years old and you already have all these degrees? I do. I, I say I love learning and I like cats. And I just decided to pursue both. So I do have a cat and I'm still learning. <laughs> Holy crap, you make me feel lazy. I, I did my associate's degree in like, I think it, it's supposed to be it's supposed to be a four-year degree. I did mine in only two years. And that was only because I was taking six classes like every semester. I was like, I'm not taking a break. I'm getting this done. I'm going to try my hardest here. And I actually started going to school for um, chemical dependency because of how bad the opioid addiction is actually affecting my area. I don't know where you're from exactly, but I'm from Maryland Ocean City. Okay, no, I'm from all over the U.S. I've been in the Kansas City area for, I think I'm in my fourth year. It's probably about right. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I live in six different states around. But um, no, I know the opi opioid epidemic is just insane. And I know you, you did mention right before this that you're getting your bachelor's in psychology. So uh, what motivated you to continue that? Um, I, I guess, I don't know. I See, I, when I started podcasting, I was like, I really like the way people think. I really like, I don't like people. I know that sounds weird being a kind of a host of a podcast. It like kind of, it's, that's why I say it's, it's a conversation. I'm like, I don't like interviews. I like just being able to talk and just kind of flow with the conversation of wherever it goes. But I'm really fascinated what people are fascinated with because I spent so much time being introvert, especially after like experiences in my life. Then I was like, people suck. Like everyone kind of sucks. And I was like, but why do we suck? And I was like, there's something deep down in there. There's something that we truly aspire to that. Like when we even mention it, the person goes, Oh, did you know this? Did you know this? And seeing somebody's eyes light up mm -hmm. and like be able to go off into something. So that they're so passionate about. It's like, this is what I'm missing. Why aren't you showing this in public anymore? And a lot of people are like, Oh, I'm afraid people think it's weird or stupid. I'm like, but why do you care? Mm -hmm. so, and so like, what do you hope to do with like where do you plan to go next after that degree like what do you want to do with that oh um I don't know I, I thought if I went to back to school um because just took the summer off I was like maybe I should focus on you know pursuing a life of psychology first it stemmed from doing social work um after chemical dependency kind of changed over I was like I like you know, helping people out, but I feel like my area and expertise would be a lot more like at least fit for dealing with kids, um, helping kids who've maybe been bullied, helping those types of things, because that's something I can use my own personal experience in. But 
at, later I started finding it was fun to maybe dive into philosophy and stuff because I got in an argument with some Jehovah's Witnesses and I was like, this, this, is, this might be what I might want to do. And I just, I, I found a fascination with people's minds working. I mean, how did you get started going into psychology? Because it's not an easy career, first of all. Well, my path was a little roundabout. So I got my first bachelor's in communication. I was getting my master's in professional communication in a second bachelor's in psychology. I was in a interpersonal communication, like master's course, and we were doing um, a section or a unit on step family communication. And I remember learning all these ways, essentially, where step families communicate well, don't communicate well, like, I mean, just different aspects of family conflict. And I remember thinking, I this, like this is information that could help people. I want to. I want to use this, and I was going to pursue like continue teaching. And I just thought, like, man, if I if I just continue with like the communication side, like, yeah, I'll be able to teach at a university, but I will only be able to share this information with privileged college students that may or may not find it useful, may or may not do something with it. And so I was like, I really want to like use this, um, use all this communication knowledge. I was in like one of those like psych 100 or like one credit classes, like for psychology, like psychology professions or something where they had a different guest speaker every week. And I just went and talked to one of them after and like asked them about becoming a therapist um, versus social worker versus counselor, you know, like just the like different, different degree paths. And I just, kind of on a whim I was like you know what like I want to do this next so I just applied to a bunch of different schools I got into all of them but like literally felt like I shouldn't go to any of them and so my husband was like well why don't you look at schools in places you would never live and so I had a very logical fear of tornadoes so I was like I went I didn't want to live in a really hot place so Florida was out and then I like I will not live in Kansas or Oklahoma but then I was just like you know what I'm just gonna look at the schools and I found a school that was right for me in a place I never wanted to live. Turns out they get like no tornadoes around Kansas City ever, pretty much. I mean, every now and then, but not where I live. And it was the best decision I ever made. So it really stemmed from having all of this education in a like similar field. I mean, a field that's close communication, like literally everything is communication. We can't do our job as therapists without it. We can't do anything without it. Um, even our cells communicate at a level, you know. Um, did you, so, when, you, when you, when you started your, uh, you, you said private practice, right? Is this something you created like your own business venture? Mm -hmm. Now Absolutely, what's this, yeah. what's, what's it called? Uh, communication and connection therapy. Now, where does this stem from Do you, now? Cause this is kind of where I get a little bit of my psych psychology. I'm going to might psychoanalyze is just, um, did you get that from like growing up? Was that your environmental factors that kind of included you to want to be a psychologist, just talking to people? Because a lot of what like is very, very difficult for people is just being able to communicate with others. Like people are always closed off and very personal, don't want to share anything. And like for me, my influence was because I had been through ex these experiences. I felt like mm -hmm. they, these people that are dealing with it, like I was, weren't do doing it in a way that they feel like anybody understands them. So that's where I kind of came from to dive into psychology. I don't know if yours was just in, like influential through your childhood or something you experienced or. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's probably a truth to stereotype of therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists who come from a very non-traditional or maybe like um, non-atomic upbringing of the atomic family. And I'm, I absolutely fit into that. But 
I really decided it was communication because I did like speech in high school. I was like speech team captain. I like would win like the all state. Like I was really good at public speaking. So I actually changed my major five times in college as an undergrad and they threatened to not give me financial aid anymore. I went back to communication because that was what I love to do. I knew the public speaking side. And then as I took more classes about the family communication or personal, um, and I still love marketing and I teach business comm um, in different classes now. Uh, but like, weirdly enough, like my family was like, that's what I'm getting my PhD in right now, actually is communication. But my family wasn't even like on the register of a motivation. Like, it was like, I have this knowledge and I want to be really fulfilled like that I learned this like if knowledge is power I feel pretty damn powerful and I really want to help other people feel the same and I had to figure out a different way to do that than academia do you think that like when you went and decided to create your own business and do these types of things like create your own wellness center was that because you saw a lot of flaws with the business in general like a lot of therapists like I've only had one therapist in my life and let me tell you I've never met someone who doesn't actually give a shit about their patient I've, I was sitting in there and you, we all know those therapists, those types of people that are just there for the check. They're just there for the money. Like literally they're like, well, sorry, your hour's up. It's like, but I didn't get to finish my, what I was saying. And some of them just sit there and listen to you because they, that's what they're, that's what literally what they think they're there to do. They're not going to give you any advice. They're not going to give you anything. They're just going to sit there, listen to you complain about your problems. Well, the session was done and people will do that just to have someone listen to them, just to be able to explain their problems out for a day. Let me tell you, one of the best therapists I've ever met in my entire life, and I didn't know she was even a therapist until just like a couple of years ago. I knew this woman my whole entire life. It was my best friend's mom. I actually had her on my podcast. Her name's Diane Brissy. Let me tell you, she owns her own wellness center, and she is a real therapist. She is someone who really gives a, like a crap about their patients. She says, after two sessions, if I feel like I cannot help this person, I give them their money back and I tell them to go and I try and point them in the right their direction to what they need. She goes, sometimes I can tell after the first session I'm not a fit for this person because they just want to hear, they want someone to hear their problems. And I try and tell them, I'm, I'm okay with listening to your problems, but I'm not going to charge you for it. My, my goal is to make your life better by finding where we can make improvements. And if you're not open to change and you're just there for someone to talk to or do this, I'm not going to charge you for it. And she's turned down clients before and then just gotten their numbers and been like, Hey, if you need someone to talk to, I can, I'm recommending you this therapist, but I'm not going to abuse you as a patient and take into account like, you're just someone that wants to wants to be heard. You're closed off. I heard that from her, and I was like, "You're you're changing the game." Like there are so many rules when it comes to not creating interpersonal relationships with being a therapist. There's so much stuff that goes behind it. Like I started reading into that, and I was like, "This might not be my fit." Like you know how di how difficult is it for you to not create a personal relationship with some of your clients? I mean, at some point you're hearing all their stuff, you end up bonding to them. Well, I mean, that's all of our relationships with our clients are personal. Like we cry with them. I mean, unfortunately, you can throw a rock and hit a really shitty therapist. I mean, you just can. But you can also throw a rock and hit a great one. Unfortunately, it takes one bad experience with one to give up on them 
entirely. And this is a very meta conversation. So in my PhD program, I study therapists. I just finished a paper on bad therapy. And in fact, and like looking at what are the things do therapists do that leave their clients coming out feeling like this was really bad. Um, and I think it's impossible to separate your relationship. I mean, it's called therapeutic alliance. 40% of growth for clients is the relationship and the trust they have in their therapist. And I, I, I do know there are therapists that, that suck and that will just charge people. And listen, I get that all the time. Like, they'll be like, I've tried multiple therapists. They just tell me like, I can feel whatever I feel and I'm fine or it'll be okay. And it's like this toxic positivity that comes out of them. And I don't know if that's burnout on the therapist side or just not keeping up with their clinical skills, but it sounds like your friend's mom is an ethical therapist. We shouldn't work outside our scope of practice. We should refer out and refer out often when we cannot do something. We're not, we're not trained to treat every single disorder in the DSM-5 or every relationship issue. It's like, it's our job to fill in the gaps where we can, but we also don't want to work with everything. Like, I don't work with kids. They terrify me. They're these adorable, wonderful people, but I have zero training in play therapy, which is like the kids therapy. So I do not see anyone under 13 because I'm not competent at that point. Um, but I mean, I, I, I love my clients so much. It's insane. Like, this is a job where you just get to love someone as a person fully without anything expected in return and it shouldn't be like you work yourself out of a job and so it's a constant like greeting and leaving and some people stay around for years and like that's totally fine like every, I think clients believe they know when they need therapy how much they need and it's their right to determine like when to end but I think it's ridiculous to not say you get an attachment like I just like you get to see human spirit like overcome obstacles over and over again in person and you root for them and cheer for them and are with them when they feel like they fail and your job is to challenge them to not be complacent and like if they feel like they got where they're at it's your job to say like hey I think we're done here unless you have anything else that you want to work on well it's, it's really weird because if you when you're studying like doing studying the dsm criteria all these rules you have to kind of go by you know there's like the laws of kind of being a therapist in general there's so many things that are counterintuitive to each other like there's one rule like you can't make interpersonal relationships and it's like one rule is like taking the above steps to go above and beyond with your client by getting to know them and their history making sure you're getting all reference points i'm like those are both kind of very counterintuitive and it well, seems like relationship means you can't like be their barber and their therapist. I mean, you can't have like an exchange of goods outside of that. Like you can't be in their church congregation, like leading their youth group and be their therapist. So that one makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I think in different cases, it's just weird because like if someone's like, you're trying to be create a personal, like you're trying to create a, a right way of analyzing somebody. So if someone comes in and they're complaining about how their home life is crap, you want to find out what their home life's about. Now that's technically in some cases considered unethical because you're becoming too personal with your client when it comes down to the just the clientele basis. Like the reason why you're not able to take any reference from um, like someone else that someone says like, oh, this is actually what happened. You can't go off theirs and you can't go off your clients. You have to kind of make your own justification for yourself. It really keeps you to a clinical way of thinking but more like your own thoughts not just looking and hearing someone's one-sided story you have to kind of 
think of the other side. Well, it completely depends on your theory. So there's over 200 models, theories, and methods of therapy. So, I mean, you're kind of describing psychoanalytic mixed with narrative, mixed with it. I mean, there's not one way to look at someone or treat somebody. So it's definitely like equifinality at play. There's lots of ways to get someone to the same goal. So who you are as a therapist, your belief system comes into play and that objectivity, um, but also personal and like personality and interpersonal relationships all comes away. It's your job as a therapist to be ethical about it all. And um, like you even like just mentioned, like sincerely, lots of different valid ways to view a client through like different lenses in which you can work. Which type of uh, therapy do you fall under when it comes to like just your theory? Like do you go psychoanalysis and psychodynamic therapies or like behavior therapy, cognitive therapy? What, which one do you tend to fall more towards? Because it's always different with each therapist. Totally. Um, so I'm trained in four different Gottman programs. So with couples like Gottman with the little EFT is pretty common for me. I use a lot of my communication background. So I'll be pulling in communication theories pretty regularly. Um, like with anxiety, cognitive behavioral therapy is pretty great. I plan to get to training cognitive processing theory um, or therapy soon. I really like acceptance and commitment therapy. I mean, different presenting problems or Oh, people talk in metaphor. Like I have clients who like they're just metaphor masters and just are so creative in how they talk about their life and how they conceptualize. And so narrative therapy tends to work really well for them. So I try to have a toolbox of things that I feel competent in and like kind of pull out based on what the client needs is either expressing to me would be helpful. Cause I mean, I will flat out ask like, what has been helpful in therapy for you before? What hasn't been like, help me help you. Um, and then do my best to match the method with the client um, is so, the best way to answer. So there's a lot that I don't know, like play therapy, for example. Like I didn't uh, go to a school where we learned psychoanalytic. Like I really like, I mean, if we go back to like older, like I love Adler and life plans, things like that, a little young, but definitely not a Freudian um, yeah, a lot of people actually like surprisingly, um, even though he's known as like the father of psycho um, therapy and all that type of stuff, or father of modern psychology, is that what it is? Um, I don't know. It's, it's like depending on the school you go to will determine how much of his stuff is taught or not. It's really weird because like I wrote a paper in uh, college uh, for on psychoanalysis and art, interpreting the means of art, and I found like it's 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 like the Rorschach test, like. It's whatever the person sees. You see a doll on the canvas, that could take you to be like, all right, that guy did not give a shit about what he was doing. But then next person would be like, it's a revelation. And like, just go off into this own deep emotional connection with the painting. And you're just like, different people take different things. And I got, a, I got an A on it, got it published and everything like that. Yeah, high five to me. No, but it was, it was so interesting because we had to look at two different photographs one was of a bowl of fruit sitting on a table with a cloth, like an old kind of Italian style cloth. And it was just like, it, 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 what it sparked inside me was most people were thinking, oh, it's just a bowl fruit painting. I was like, no, if you look deeply close to it, you can picture like Italy during like, I don't know, like just like this, maybe this kind of like dusty season. And it's like my mind just started wandering off. And yeah, a, a lot with like psychoanalysis and stuff happens to do a lot with creativity and it really depends on the person. I think like when you're talking about cognitive therapy, like a lot of people don't understand like that's like dysfunctional like thinking, like that's kind of with your emotions and behaviors and like changing your thoughts and like basically how they pe- people change how they feel. And I'm like, that makes sense. 
that like I, I mean I think it's an okay route depending on the client and a lot of people don't understand like therapy is a client to client basis each one is going to be different you know just like how we all mm-hmm. have passions one dude likes to build ikea furniture and another dude likes to uh just do an office job those two people are completely different and whether that's from their upbringing whether it was from their genetic factors there's so many things that come into play so i mean it's harder to narrow down which one I guess, really utilizes for each therapist, like saying that you would be all about cognitive therapy would be completely a wrong justification because you cannot technically treat any client properly if you're just stuck to one theory. Yeah, I mean, that's the benefit of, you know, getting your master's and learning class by class, tons of different theories to find what fits with you, what, like, like you do your full internship where ours was 500 hours where, I mean, you're really figuring yourself out. You're figuring out how to do this, what works for you, what doesn't, what works for your clients, what doesn't, and how to kind of mix your intuition and with your education. I mean, it's it's definitely a process. What is your thoughts on humanistic therapy? I don't know enough about it to have a lot of thoughts on it, to be honest. It's basically like it really, I guess, emphasizes people to have like a capacity to make rational choices and like kind of develop like a full potential a little bit. Um, I never really liked that one because it seemed like it was making people give unrealistic goals like, like, oh, that's because you're influenced. You need to create a better influence and then you'll be able to get this. You'll be able to get that. You'll be able to get that. I'm like, you're giving him goals that he might not want to obtain. And I just, I have a fascination because when you're dealing, doing therapy, you're basically talking to someone improv style, like you're, you're adapting Mm -hmm. to what they're telling you. And I just like being able to problem solve, like most people think, oh, your car's out of gas. That's, you got to be able to problem solve that. No, it's like, imagine someone telling you something and you can kind of catch the I guess the horse shit, like the little bit of stuff that's not really the problem, then move past that and basically able to adapt to the situation to be able to talk to them in such a way that you can actually get down to the root cause of their problems. Yeah, that's why they see you for. I mean, I I get very frustrated with my field when people tell me they go in and for eight sessions or so, like someone just agrees with them or tells them that they're doing everything the best that they can. Like our job is to challenge people like they need to be able to trust us to catch them in those moments like when their automatic thoughts are illogical they're trying to make sense of things that don't work when they have like um, unhelpful thinking patterns like they're struggling with like dual loyalties around meanings of their relationships or career whatever it is that they have social anxiety or depression and they come to us because they hope and believe and trust that we can help them and that is our job what is like if you obviously because of the clientele information like confidential stuff but what is one experience you've had you don't have to name the person you don't have to name anything but like a situation that you've had that really like you felt like you really helped this person oh gosh I mean all the time like I mean genuinely I feel like I have the best job on the planet I mean even I call myself a recovering pessimist. Like you said earlier, people are the worst and they are, but they're also the best. Like it is impossible to witness the resiliency of the human spirit over and over and over again and not just be so optimistic about everything. Like it's a very thankful job, which is like an ego trip because you're constantly told like how much you help someone and like how grateful they are for you. And so it's like you hear those and it's like, let it feel good for a while. And then you have to check 
yourself, you're like, I'm still learning. Like I still need to go out and do my CEUs. Like I still need to keep improving my job, like my skills so that I can improve them. But I mean, it is a weird job where you're, you're constantly kind of told that like they come back in they do like whatever if you want to call it or whatever goals they set for themselves and they come into the next session like I did this this and this and like it's like well how do you feel about you watching yourself do that like what is that like for you or how are you experiencing yourself differently now and it's I mean it's honestly constant like it's it's I love teaching as well I'm lucky enough to do the two things I love doing more than anything in the world and it, it it it's the best like I can't even like put into words how great I, mean, I just came off of six sessions in a row like I'm having a great day right now so you caught me and like I'm like a really hyped like happy. yeah I know you're so energetic and I like that because what actually kind of leads to what I was gonna ask next was um have you ever experienced like when you sometimes like a lot of people don't understand how much how draining it is to be actually be a therapist because you have your moments where you get a bunch of cases back to back you really feel like you had a great day you feel like you nailed it you feel like you helped everyone at least a little bit and then you're like so energized so pumped up to feel everything and then some days you'll just get so many stuff that you'll be like completely like tank on empty, like right in the morning, like, oh my God, I can't make it through the rest of the day. Like everyone's like, you're like, I do not want to work today. I just want to lay in bed and eat ice cream and do nothing. And then you're like, I got to go work for five hours. Yeah. It's like, but cause I used to take, um, we, I did some of my stuff. Like we had for our homework, we had to research, like, uh, watch our movies, like the, the Kevin Hines story or Kyle Hines story. Um, the guy that jumped off the golden gate bridge and how he talks about all that. And then, but you're hearing all these different things. Like they did a case scenario, which I thought was fascinating. Um, they had five, it was, it was, it was five people with a mental illness out of a total of, I think 12 people. And it was like, they, uh, three therapists all in different fields had to try and diagnose which one had the mental disorder, which one had the OCD, which one had the ADHD, which one had the cleaning disorder, yeah, just a whole list of them, which one was bipolar, which one was paranoid, which one was schizophrenic, all that type of stuff. But you hear these cases and like you hear a fascination study like that. So all three therapists got every single one wrong, did not guess a single person correctly. And that's because of medication. Modern medication makes it so difficult for a therapist to do their job. It is so yeah, hard ben, because ben, benzos suppress the amygdala, so that makes it a lot harder to work on anxiety because we really need to like get that going. Um, SSRIs can be really helpful; like they can be like almost like a jump start to getting to baseline, and can really help people feel a little more evened out to do the really hard work. But everyone responds to medication so differently, and finding time or like the time it takes sometimes to get the right dose and especially like having ethical and really responsible psychiatrists who are prescribing. Um, I mean, and earlier you mentioned the opioid crisis. I mean, so that's, I mean, the not psychotropic medication, but that's still a prescription medication that's affecting so many people's lives. And there are luckily so many people who prescribe responsibly and like all these spectrums and people that don't, and that makes it harder for all of us. Are you against what we consider to be mental health medication? No, um, I think that prescribed responsibly and just like there isn't a stigma if you need heart medication to keep your heart pumping, right? But there is a stigma if you need something, if you experience like bipolar one or two, 
Um, I think that every body is different. I do have a belief system that people are over-medicated and maybe medicated too young and other avenues aren't explored first because there can be long-term consequences on medication, especially when you try to get off of them. And I think that that is a huge area in our medical system that is not attended to, which is having open and honest treatment plans. Like if you go on this medication, here's how long you're projected to be on it. And here are the steps to getting off. Here's how we taper. That can take six months, sometimes up to a year. If you just go off of them, you might feel suicidal really quickly and the dangers of just stopping your medication, um, the risk of going on them, how long it takes to find the right dose. I think that there's it's a curse and a blessing and it's so much dependent on the person who prescribes them and how honest and open they are. And they don't get a lot of time on average, even just family doctors get 11 minutes with somebody. So if they mention at the end, they're depressed and like, oh, take this, like you have no time to explain all of this. And I know that psychiatrists, it's getting harder and harder to spend time with them. Um, they're like getting 15 minutes with clients um, to do med checks, everything. And I can't imagine how to do those assessments so quickly to where you feel like really confident in doing that because the patients are the people who suffer when they don't have the knowledge, the information, or the options, um, the education on what they're choosing or not choosing to pursue. So, I mean, it's not a simple yes or no. It's a just we have a lot to work on. I think it's really kind of crazy. Like I'm, I'm pro, like, like how you were saying for, if it's, if it's for that person, it's not fit for everyone. I mm-hmm. think like, obviously I'm, I'm just going to take a shot in the dark here. Do you have ADHD? I do not. You don't have ADHD. You're all over the place. Well, I'll say, cause I have ADHD. So like when I see someone that's like really into what they're talking about, really into like going and kind of like bouncing back and forth, like when I was a kid, education system gave up on me. They thought I was like, I need to be prescribed medication. I need this. Like I'm uncontrollable. Nobody wants to handle me. They just basically put me in a room, like get out of here. Like didn't even give me a shot. Now mm-hmm. I've had very few teachers. I think three out of my, all my schooling that have really given the extra mile and learned how to work with my ADHD in ways that fit for me and help me learn. And I'm very grateful for those, but I feel like medications being prescribed too easy nowadays the fact that like what's going on now with hormone replacement therapies like you're getting seeing six-year-olds that are getting hormone treatments getting testosterone injected to them if they're a girl just because they feel like they're the wrong gender kids don't know what they want yet okay I, i i have a big problem with this i've podcasted with transgender people i've talked to them i've gotten they've changed my whole way of thinking when it came to this i'm hearing it from a one-sided source telling me oh they don't like to be called he or her anymore they can call ziz their ziz or zems i'm like what like what when do we draw the line at ridiculous but the way she explained it to me was like imagine looking in the mirror and not liking what you see feeling like you're out of place in your own body and he's been taking male testosterone for eight months now but he's at the cognizant age where his brain is developed to be able to make these decisions on his own. I think it's really weird when you hear about in the news that a mother gave her six-year-old kid male hormones and male replacement or male treatment therapy just to change his gen or her gender into a guy. I'm like, the kid's six years old. Like, they don't know what they want yet. Their brain's not fully developed. Now, if well, that are child- Are you interested in going into psychiatry? If medication is something that's really important to you and that you've been learning a lot about? Because I mean, from psychology, would you think about going to med school and going into that field? I, I would, I honestly, my fascination is with people just because 
I feel like we all have something out there that is weighing on us, which it's true. It's evident, like it's out there, but I think it's a lot with what the world projects today. I think that narrowing myself down to something when it's just dealing with medication, I have so many problems with so many things. I have problems with the way I act. I have problems that why every time I drive and someone's going really slow or on their phone in front of me and I miss a light, I get pissed off. I turned, turned out the fact is you're aware you're in this giant machine and your bodies are on constant hyper alert. That fascinates me. I'm like, that explains so much why like the woman at Starbucks is complaining that she didn't get three shots of espresso on her Starbucks unicorn frappuccino. Like she's being, she's getting something's deep down in there. So whenever I see someone get upset at a store, I kind of look at them. I go, what's that person going through? Where a lot of people just make justifications and makes claims on things a lot, especially with how the world works today. Sadly, we're all walking around with a mask. I talk about this a lot. A lot of my podcast kind of focuses on a little bit on society just because it's, we're all living here together, but nobody wants to take the time to get to know one each other. Like, I want to know what you're interested in. Right now, you're, gonna, you're telling me the story of Corey Peterson. You're telling me everything you're interested in. So far, you've been nailing me down with some psychology stuff. And it's like, I, I, I like that because I, I see someone that gets into something and really has a willingness and wantingness to help somebody. And it's like, there you go. You found it. You found what you wanted to do. I, I, I'm guessing this is what you want to do for the rest of your life, right? At least just be able to help people. Oh, I think so. I've never had a plan yet. I still don't plan to have one. That's how I put it. I think people think I'm really organized with all of the education and everything. But honestly, a lot of this was spur of the moment. Like I believe wanting something is reason enough to do it. And I see foresee myself wanting to be a therapist for a very long time. But if I ever change my mind, that's okay with me. Yeah, I just think people have these amazing, amazing things about us that we can literally aspire to do anything we put our minds to. And we're in a world where it's the norm to act like every other person. We're, we're meant to act like each other, as in you're got to be Bill that works a nine to five, goes home, goes to work, goes home, goes to work, goes home, goes to work. No, no questions asked, no creativity really sparked. And a lot of people say, well, you're talking about this is the best time for creativity. No, it's not. Because sadly, it, the world doesn't spark too much for creativity anymore, considering whenever you go, why don't you invent something? Someone's like, well, everything's already been invented. Okay, that was never a question back in the day. Things that are going to be made 20 or now that are going to affect us 20 years from now, we couldn't even imagine living without it. You know, the fact that before they had lamps or light bulbs, next thing you know, they were like, how could we ever live without this device? Oh, that's right. We had candles. There's always something before. I think we're all puzzle pieces trying to fit into this giant thing we call a picture. I think taking bits and pieces of whatever, whether it comes to religion, whether it comes to all the things, I think we're all getting a slight glimpse of the big picture, but everybody's choosing to push someone else down if they don't believe in what they believe in. I, I know that was kind of like a rant a little bit, but don't you well, feel- Well, like you said, you like psychology and philosophy. So I feel like there's sociology in there too, and probably all of the- social science humanities in there. I feel like a lot of what impacts us is our environment. And at the same time, like, I know you probably just talking to people, you probably understand a lot about like 
traumas that people go through, experiences that people go through. But do you see how the world's kind of set out to make everyone kind of act alike, not really act in their own individual way, like that spark of individuality? Um, I, I think that's hard to answer because I have the privilege of seeing the individual, right? I mean, so I see, I hear the pressures that they feel that they're under, but when you dive into it, it's the pressure they put on themselves, right? That's usually what you dig down to is they hear all of these messages from family, friends, society, whatever it is. And when they're able to unpack and realize how much autonomy they actually have and like the individualism that they do have, it changes. And so I'm, I'm from a very privileged position on that because I, I get each person at the individual level. Um, and I can't imagine, I mean, I grew up, MySpace was a thing in high school, like Facebook came out when I was in college and even MySpace, like it wasn't on phones or anything, you have to go home and check. And I can imagine that pressure to look a certain way, behave a certain way has just gotten way worse since I was in high school. I mean, when I was in high school, I was black band shirt, skinny jeans, crazy hair, heavy eyeliner, you know, very like went to um, gosh, screamo things on the weekend, like Devil Wears Prada, the Bronx. Um, so I don't know. I I think it was easier back then, to be honest. Like you, technology you, is a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Do you think? All right. So that's that was actually gonna what I was gonna ask next. So do you have a problem with where technology has gone today? Obviously, there are some benefits to it, but do you think overall it's kind of had a disapproval at least towards how people act towards each other? And now it seems like a voice or an outlet for people to voice their opinion that they, if they thought twice about it, they probably wouldn't voice it in the first place. I think that it gives some people a false sense of like expertise. Like people will put out tweets or um, posts about like foreign policy, but none of them have a PhD, master's, even bachelor's. Like, I mean, where they learn their foreign policies probably from tweets and different things. And that might even be true. Like we have more sources to find knowledge than we ever have before, which I think is a great benefit. But I think that there might be a pressure to feel like you have an opinion on everything, even if your opinion is uneducated. And I think that's really unfair to people that we need to be in the know about everything. Like when we look at the tragedies in the world, there's right racism, sexism, bigotry, sex slavery, work labor, immigration, um, travel bans, poverty, uh, gosh, famine and the world wars. Like there's literally, I mean, an infinite number of causes you can be passionate about. And we're somehow supposed to know enough about all of them to engage in an intelligent conversation. It's nobody can do that at any age. And so we try to find the things we're passionate about, but I don't think that's enough for a lot of people. I think that they want everyone to have an opinion on everything. And so I think that is a deficit of the, maybe the pressure to feel like you need to be an expert on something, have an opinion about something, respond to people all the time. Um, when in real life, like if someone says something that we don't agree with, um, we might just be able to let there be something out in the world that we don't agree with and that's okay. And I think there might be more pressure online that if it's public and someone sees that someone's bidding you and trying to get you to talk, like you need to respond when you don't owe anyone anything, if that makes sense. And it's okay to say, I don't know enough about that to comment on it, but I'm learning. Well, the, everything's a learning process. The cool part about psychotherapy that I really actually admire is the fact that it's constantly evolving, constantly. It's a learning process. Like it's mm -hmm. different. Every patient, every day it's different. It's something new. It's like a trade job, like HVAC. They're never, there's always new information out there. So you can be a master, 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 whatever. You're going to be there in, for 30 years. But I can tell you, my teacher that taught me HVAC was like, 
I'm learning new stuff every single day. There's always something new being created. There's always some type of thing you have to work on. There's always something you have to adapt to. And with therapy, it's the same way. There's always, there's thousands of theories, some being like just minor variations, but they all dive into like different realms of psychology. People like to think psychology is one base thing, which is just Oh, that's just how your mind works. It's not just how your mind works. There's so many factors that There's go into it. There's over 200 theories, models, methods to treat anybody. I mean, and it keeps growing. Like, there's more theories come up all the time. It's, and it, we're all required to continue our education. You have to do at least 40 hours every two years. Keep building that knowledge. Keep learning the new advances, especially as technology advances. We have to advance with it. Like, it's no longer an option. So do you see it a problem kind of in the realm of psychotherapy? Do you think it's a kind of a, a helpful thing? Do I think psychotherapy is helpful? No, do, do you think technology is helpful to psychotherapy or is it oh, more yeah. of a detriment? Well, I think it provides more access. I mean, people being able to do teletherapy, like uh, I do Skype or not Skype because it's not HIPAA compliant, but I do like essentially teletherapy with clients who can't come face to face. So um, the fact that there's more access is a huge blessing for the field. I mean, a hundred percent. I do think that actually I've had pretty good. I, I haven't had this a lot. I know colleagues have of like clients being on their phone during session or like wanting to be on their phone. I haven't had that, honestly, like all of it's like something dings, my client will just put on silence. Like I've never had anybody just bust out their phone, but I know a lot of people have, and maybe especially people who see more kids might have that more than I do. Um, but I do think that it, there's more anxiety associated with maybe fear of missing out that younger people might experience and also that like body image issues might, depending on what they expose themselves to online, might like be like a cesspool for some of those insecurities that are natural when you're a teenager and if not managed well, which there's no high school class on how to engage in like multimedia literacy and how to create boundaries and that doesn't exist in high school. So, um, do you think you, are, do you think there's a rise in anxiety in these social cultures just because of where the technology is kind of going? It seems like everybody's like constantly is like ex- anxiety levels or this rate in our country right now have been higher than in the past ten years. Like it's it's getting worse and worse. More people are are seeing at younger ages and are developing a higher level of anxiety. Where it was before seen like it was around, but it wasn't really talked about. Now it's like all over the place. Like kids are committing suicide. Kids are doing all these types of things because they feel pressured. I mean, I've seen people that deal with anxiety. Hell, I even have anxiety. I think we all have a level of it, but I think the level increases with so many justifications and kind of standards we feel like are pushed upon us by how the world is today, at least how um, this country is a little bit like a lot of people, like I've podcasted with people from Russia, from Bulgaria, students that come over here on their visas to do work and make as much money as possible, go back to their country. And they're like, you're different. I'm like, what do you mean I'm different? They're like, you're not two-faced. I'm like, what do you mean two-faced? They're like, I feel like I can never be open about somebody because they're always talking about me behind my back. It's not really, I mean, it's in our country, but it's not as common as it is in America. And I'm like, I understand that because I'm constantly around it. I feel like we're all pulling out the ruler every single day and trying to compare stuff. It's like, why are we comparing things like Oh, this person has that and I don't have that. Well, uh, that person sucks because I mean, I, I do so much. It's like, why are you comparing yourself to them? Why do you have to analyze and just do that? Like, you know how easy it is to be like, eh, that's, that's, that's them. That's not me. Eh, there you go. It's over with. But even then, we still compare ourselves to other countries too. Like, just think you could be living in Africa where the kids are starving. Why are we doing that? Why are we talking about that? 
We're ignoring our problems and and comparing it to another country that's even in a worse situation. It's like, shouldn't we be focused on our own problems and not have to dive into someone else's like business? Well, and speaking of anxiety, I'm sure you've seen lots of studies like I have that those who are moderate to high users of social media tend to experience more anxiety. And uh, I, I don't know if I, there's probably studies at more of a societal level I don't know about, but I do know that there are plenty of studies and research that shows that at least millennials are the loneliest generation since they've started recording levels of loneliness and are experiencing less like really um, connected friendships and more shallow relationships. Well, that's um, because of technology. I mean, everybody thinks like when they have a million Facebook friends that they're all their, their best friends, like that are going to be there for every moment. And you realize who the true people are, who are the loyalty actually lies when next thing you know you break down and nobody's picking up the phone all those people you got on snapchat doesn't really matter how many instagram likes you got on that one food picture because none of those people are there to help you out i think that's what creates a lot of anxiety too is, it, is that something you've experienced like i don't have a snapchat twitter or anything like that so oh you're off that. social media I have a Facebook that I check every now and then, but that's that's it. So I've never had a Snapchat. I'm, I have an Instagram, but no profile because I just look at pictures of dogs, to be honest. So I've never made a post or anything. I wouldn't uh, but I do like say shop dogs. I wouldn't say it's my own personal experience with it. I'd say it's more of the fact like I'm noticing now, like just trying to, I'm trying to be more aware of my surroundings of what's going on with the world around me, not trying to be confined to my own self, like trying to podcast with as many people as possible just to get everyone's experience and intake of their thoughts, their passions, these types of things. So I can have more of a reference and more of, I guess, an open mind. Um, like, you know, when it comes to religion, I want to know why that person's so belief in religion. A lot of times it's just their experience, but we all fall in the same factor of how the world works. So people are kind of afraid to show who they truly are on an offense that they're going to piss somebody off. And I think social media plays a big factor with that. I'm seeing my little cousins play Fortnite, play these types of games, and they're getting super, super, I guess, addicted to it where they don't want to go anything. And these best friends now don't get me wrong. One of my really good friends is over Xbox. I've never met before. He's in Wisconsin, but we've had Snapchat. We've had Facebook. I know what he looks like. I know his family. Like He's a major supporter to my podcast since I started it. We talk every now and again. I have his phone number. That's where I see technology being a benefit, being able to connect people. But I think everyone uses it nowadays to constantly put themselves down on accident. And by mean on accident is by following hot models on Instagram, following these types of people that are using filter effects, using color effects to display a falsified image to the public. That's not who they truly are. Like I, I dived into the realm of following what they call real bodybuilders, the people that show you like you see this six pack and then they'll put up a picture like this is 10 minutes after I took that shot. You notice I'm not in the gym anymore. I'm home. This is after I ate and I got a food baby. And it's like, I see that and I'm like, thank you for lightning, enlightening everybody that if that's not, you know, I have a six pack. Okay. You don't keep that 24 seven. You drink a water, you do anything, adding water weight, doing whatever it's gone. Basically. It's just gone. It's, it's not like it's not there. It's just, it just doesn't show as much as it did in that awesome Instagram picture you took where you added a bunch of sharpness effects and made sure the lighting was right. I tell people all that type of stuff when it comes to looks is 60% lighting, 20% nutrition and 20% hard work. Like it's all it is. And it keeps, it helps me be able to motivate people in my gym because I started doing that when I got uh, bullied really bad for being overweight in school. So I said, I'm going to turn this into something where I don't, where I want to, be able to justify myself to others and feel wanted in the world. I took that 
And I ran a whole completely different way with it. Now I've been going every day for almost seven years. And I'm telling you, I don't really give a shit what people think anymore. I'm more, I wouldn't say, I guess what people think about me, I guess, but I'm more interested in how people think and how people work. Like, okay. Um, yeah. So that person's a little bit overweight. If they want to change it, they have the tools to change it. I'm not going to knock them if they try and change it. But the fact is we're, we want acceptance. And I'm like, why is this? Why do we all feel like we need that like button? We need that Instagram follow. We need these types of things. I'm seeing it affect kids my age. I tend to stay off my phone most of the time. I try and keep my hours logged into my phone like just to check it in the morning and have it on an emergency if somebody calls me. And it's kind of hard when I try and coordinate with podcasts because next thing you know, I'm getting 20,000 messages back to back from one guy. Like, is this day okay? Is this? I'm like, dude, yeah, man. Like, I'll, I'll talk to you the day before, make sure we got, you know, let's plan it in the books and do all this type of stuff because it's addicting. It's a dopamine response. It just, it, it gives you that dopamine. I'm like, so many people are looking for that because they're not finding it in their everyday life. Well, I mean, you keep saying we all and everybody and you're an everybody. So like you said, you've had these experiences and it sounds like you're looking at the difference between connection and attention, right? Yeah. I mean, dude, you don't, you don't know how crazy I get when I see on Dragon City, this stupid game on my phone. And it's like for $4.99, you can buy 120 gems. I'm like, deal. And I just jump into it. And that's only because that game brings me a sense of happiness, which I've been finding is weird because I'm seeing it affect more people nowadays, like video games becoming a lot more popular than how it was before, where it was just kind of condoned to a, a kid's activity. I'm seeing adults playing video games, adults getting into it now. I mean, they're going to put it in the Olympics. They're going to put video gaming in the Olympics. I'm like... I think it's because people have a fascination to escape from the reality we're constantly living in. And that's where my mind goes, yo, that's a rabbit hole I want to go down. I want to see why we think this way. I want to go down. That's why I was like, I want to get everybody's experience. You know, if I told you, you ever, you know what a naturalist or spiritualist is? Uh, I might have a friend who would describe herself that way. So that is my point of reference. So my aunt is actually a spiritualist and I was like, what do you do? Like, and she goes, Oh, I make wands. I do yoga meditation. I cast like these seances. I'm like, anybody that wasn't me would have easily thought this person's a whack job, at least the common person today. And I said, okay, explain it to me. She explained it to me. We went out on the boardwalk was common popular attraction in my town. A lot of people that walk on it basically every day. A lot of like, carnival rides and stuff like that on there it's like an amusement park basically but it's last like four miles and uh so i was like okay well what do you do so she started doing meditation all these weird spells and types of things that was a little bit uh abnormal but i did it and then afterwards i said i get it i get it i really do you have a sense of wholeness with the earth you found a way to totally relieve the stress from your life and i'm not going to knock you for it and the people that are sitting there pointing and laughing just because you have a wand i'm like that's awesome i actually got to create my own wand and you know what i don't care if that makes me nerdy because it was a fun experience the same reason why i hear somebody go really hard talking about you're going to go to hell if you don't believe in god i went dived into the realm of parody religions trying to figure out why there's a thing called pastafarianism why there's a thing called uh the united church of bacon well i signed up 
and I became an ordained minister under the United Church of Bacon. It took oh. me an hour and 45 minutes at my uh, Maryland courthouse, and it took me $45, but I did it. And I just did it because to, to show the aspect of like, whatever you want to do, whether someone considers it stupid or whether it's ridiculous or not, you can do it. You can like you do whatever you want. It's your life. You have the keys to your own car to drive it. I can tell you, I can be the GPS that tells you in which direction you should go. But honestly, you can only make that inference for yourself. If you feel like you haven't, you need to make a change in your life, you make a change. If you feel like you're comfortable at where you're at, then do it. Then do what you're doing. But I feel like a lot of people just tend to overreact and try and if they hear somebody's doing something or they're not doing something in their life, they have to take it out on somebody else. I don't, I don't know if you kind of think the same way when it comes to that. Um, not, it sounds like at an individual level, you're really open as you talk about society in general, it's a lot of we all and everybody. And I'm wondering if that's just the people, you know, face to face, that's what you've seen online. Cause I think people would surprise you if you give them a chance. And that's probably what you've been experiencing as the, podcasting talking to more and more people that they're not all the same like and even if like a Facebook photo or Instagram whatever people use I don't know Snapchat they look similar to each other like the person underneath when you talk to them is very different and a lot I think the generation Z especially like those born around 2000 and later are like so much more open um, I know like even just teaching them, like my students who are 18, 19 years old, like are, there's much better listeners. Like, I mean, I see a lot on face-to-face. -face. I, I had an online class I just finished right now. And even then, like, I feel like there is a stereotype of millennials and Generation Z that they're so reactive and so mad. And maybe on Facebook, because of that pressure to always respond, that's true. But in a classroom setting, as we do really hard discussions about diversity and um, academia and privilege and all these things, like, I find them to be the most open and like the best listeners and I'm constantly surprised by them and hopeful because of them. Um, but I, if these experiences come from a lot of online interaction, like I do feel like people are becoming both so much kinder and much crueler at the same time. Um, but I, I, again, I'm very privileged position where I get to see people who tell me they're at their worst, but be able to see like how great of a job they are doing and, just had needing a little encouragement to get there. Do you think that uh, like when it comes to, I guess, experiments throughout like my, just the realm of uh, psychology, like what do you know any of like famous experiments? Uh, like the Milgram experiment? Yeah, 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 yeah. Are you fascinated by that? Oh yeah, I love any experiments. Like, oh, there's been some even great Netflix specials and shows of like sociological. Like, Have like, you seen the Stanford like prison experiment? Oh, yeah, the prison experiment. Isn't that nuts? It's all about power. Oh, my God. All right, so I do another podcast called Fill in the Blank, which is like a th it's basically the opposite out of the blank. You, we just focus on specific topics for like 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. I did the Stanford prison experiment. I did the milligram experiment, the Gansfield experiment. I did MK Ultra. I did so many things. And I, I, I mostly like that was all for me because I liked enjoying like reading mm -hmm. that, like about just type of weird programs. Like, do you know anything about MK Ultra? I don't. And I am horrible at names of things. Like I get this to be good like, at a lot of things. I'm not good at names of people. <laughs> this is like the weirdest experiments ever. And like it, it hurts so many people because it was all like mind control stuff, like yeah. using, um, what is that isolation 
uh, God, what's it called? There's a thing, there's a word behind it. Uh, basically hyper, what is it? What is the thing where you d you take out everybody's senses? Like you hyperbolic make, chambers? No, not hyperbolic no, chambers. No, 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 it's no. it's um. Oh, oh shoot! Yeah, what's it called? Oh. It's uh whatever it was, but like they 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 made a yeah. person like uh cover their eyes, then they filled them in a hole, had earplugs on, and they put them in this this like open hole, and they dumped snakes in there. But they yeah. gave them a medicine to where they couldn't move their bodies, so they were literally paralyzed. And yeah, it's, I have not heard of those, and I would have freaked out if I were there. Before. There's these bunch of the experiments that came out, and like the, you found out the government was doing some shady stuff. You ever heard of Project Jedi? Jedi? Yeah, it's based on the movie Men Who Stare at Goats. Oh, I haven't seen that in forever. That was the ooh, the movie with George Clooney. Yeah, George Clooney. Wait, shoot, I was thinking salmon fishing in Yemen. Oh, okay, George Clooney when they're in like a uh, Middle East, right? Yeah, and they're dealing okay. with um, but like the whole concept was creating psychological warriors for the military. Yes, and that you can like stare to go and like it'll Look, die or explode or something like that. Exactly, I saw that yes. movie. Okay. I saw that movie ten years later, like right now, like it's been ten years. I saw or I heard the real experiment. It was known as Project Jedi, and let me tell you, everything they played in that movie that I thought was so fascinating and so funny is real. It happened exactly in the same state as me my mom went to that my mom went to that high school it was in fort meade maryland they were creating psychological warriors on the basis of um they 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 thought since russia was dealing with psychological warfare that they were creating like these people that could control other people's minds and use them as weapons and stuff that we that's where our fascination came from so we started diving into that realm we started doing things like we had a barn of goats we had things a bunch of things and actually there was one reported soldier that was known to stop a goat's heart like it just randomly like it's a, it's a whole evidence case this is all in cia database you can look up it's really really fascinating and i heard that i was like holy crap like I've talked to people that have what seems to be another ability, whether it's seeing the dead, whether it's seeing, mm -hmm. doing these types of things. And I, I believe it. I believe that you can feel, um, I think you can get so sensitive or so emotionally connected to either energy or something around you where you can literally pick up things like this. I've podcasted with psychotherapists. I've podcasted with psycho healers. I've done, I've, I've tried to dive into every realm as much as possible. It's only because I, it's it's crazy to see what comes. What you, are you clapping? Oh no, I'm cracking my fingers. Sorry. Oh, I thought you were clapping. I was <laughs> like, thank you. I didn't know that would be that loud. You gave me a dopamine response. I was so happy. I'm no. sorry. <laughs> I could clap if you'd like me to. No, that, okay. well, that must have been really loud. Oh, there it goes. Jeez. Uh, well, it, it, when it comes to uh, like just understanding, like imagine that you're watching this movie with the guy that played Obi Wan Kenobi in the new versions of Star Wars, and then you find out. There's literally a guy, God, I forgot what his name is, uh, General Albert, Albert, Alberstein or something like that, Albertstein. Um, he freaking would run into walls and there were reported cases of actual volunteers or not volunteers, but workers at the place being like exactly at 2 p.m. He would get up from his chair, run headfirst into a wall and knock himself out. And you're like, why is he, you thought it was a joke in the movie? At least I did when I was watching it. He thought he, if you focused hard enough with enough brain power, you could make yourself go through the wall. Oh. So there's literally a reported case to the point where they were like, we ended up after replastering the wall multiple times, we ended up giving it a breakaway wall so he wouldn't kill himself by running headfirst into it. 
and you hear that and general out out whatever his name is alberstein something someone has to look that up but it's so fascinating i'm like that one is probably one of my favorites project jedi and then have you ever heard of the hoffling hospital experiment no and again i probably would not remember the name of it this one is I mean, this one you probably might enjoy. So in 1966, there was a psychiatrist named Charles K. Hoffling who conducted a basically a field test on obedience in the nurse-physician relationship. So in, a, in basically in a hospital, there were nurses ordered by unknown doctors to administer what could have been a, like, I guess a lethal dose um, to a patient of a certain drug. And it like the official guidelines were kind of like, don't do it because they were warned before that it was a lethal dose, but they were told by the doctor that they didn't know to, that they had to do it. So they found out that 21 of these 22 nurses gave their patient an overdose of this medicine because they were told to by a higher up power. I believe that. It's, I think the milligram experiment, um, I'm pretty sure that was the one that was based on like a courtroom, right? That's that's the one where they like shocked them. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yep. electropulsive therapy. Mm -hmm. What's your th what's your thoughts on electropulsive therapy? Uh, ECT. I've never once been taught anything about it because I'm a therapist. Um, well, so I mean, I do you think study, do you think but... it's like well, do you think it's unethical? Like looking back at it now, like even for their times, or do you think that was just like their modern form of medicine? Oh gosh, well I know a lot of people use it to like uh, for to treat like homosexuality when it was believed that it was a not something you're born with, but something that was a mental illness. And I think that is extremely unethical. Uh, aside from those studies, and I had done a lot of reading on that, um, on unethical therapies for that. But I, other than that, I really don't know other uses that it was used for. Um, but I mean, I, I would never myself use that certainly i don't even know if that's a thing anymore how do you hear somebody being so like kind of like would you call them uneducated like the people that were conducting experiments like this like shocking someone to the point to where they wouldn't be gay anymore like do you just think they were just uneducated or they had like a twisted mind in a way because surprisingly if you ask a lot of people at least in the world today that don't deal with psychology or anything they think oh that person's just a sick person I think that person was probably a curious person and wanted to see if it would work. They probably were working from a belief system that homosexuality was a choice to begin with. So they felt then it was something that could be changed or quote in their mind cured. So you have to imagine like people today in politics, right? That'll have, you know, terminal degrees in the same thing while completely opposing and educated belief systems um, from, they just know something differently than the other person. And so when it goes back to those experiences, I can't imagine they were uneducated, but I do imagine that they had a very strict belief system that they're operating from, from that didn't allow them objectivity and their curiosity was something that ended up being really damaging. Like, I mean, I, they probably had good intentions on their end of what they thought was a good thing. I think most of us, we look at the things we're least proud of. We go back to the moment. We probably think we had really great intentions, um, but the outcomes weren't what we wanted. And I hope 
that they don't like those outcomes. Maybe they, I don't I think it's weird when you use electric convulsive therapy, like you're shocking someone's brain to work right. And it's really weird at the fact that it's still a medical treatment today that is most commonly used in patients with severe depression and bipolar disorder because they won't respond to other treatments. I was thinking like shock therapy. Um, But yeah, there are um, lots of really interesting studies. I forget what it's called now. It's called because now they like go into your brain. it's very different now. It's not like sitting in a chair shocking your hands or something. It's um, shoot, what is that? What kind of therapy is that called? Oh, I have to think about it's it. It's electric compulsive therapy. No, there's another name for it um, for like the whole device and like system that is used. You mean transcranial magnetic stimulation? Yeah, there we go. Wow, thank God for school. Yes. Holy crap. <laughs> like, you I was thinking, I was like, I only knew there was another name for it. And I knew it was something to do with the, the brain. As soon as I heard yep. the word like brain, I think crane, like, well, I don't know. Yeah, my brain so, I mean, makes... that's very different than like having someone think about something than shocking them. I mean, that's a whole I mean, type of therapy. I mean, it's that uses like magnetic therapy. fields and stuff. Like, yeah, so they don't have to like go and probe anything. Just, well, the weird uh, part is ECT, like electric convulsive therapy. It's, it's meant to bring on a seizure. Yeah. Like that's the whole point of ECT was it seizures you like it brings your brain to a seizure where it like a lot of what's common with seizures is like partial temporary memory loss a little bit. So they're basically when that feeling or effect comes up, they shock you to where you go into a seizure and you basically forget that feeling so you don't experience it again. I'm like, that is so freaking hardcore. I, oh, I would freak out. Like, like one of my biggest fears is have a seizure. Like imagine you're just sitting there, like I can't stop being depressed. The world's and someone's like, and you just get shocked, like you're sticking your like a fork in the toaster. I've done that. It doesn't feel good. Okay, my toast got stuck in the toaster, and my idiot self, instead of turning it off, was like, I'm gonna sugar and try to get my toast out. And next thing I know, I'm like shocked. I think it's very, very weird how we try and consider how the brain works. And I actually have a fascination. Like if I was going to dive into any science realm, it would be to understand the brain a little bit more. People want to experience space, which I get the fascination of trying to understand what's out there. Let me tell you something. I have a fascination with Bigfoot. I want to know if he's out there. But I also want to know, instead of understanding what's out there, I want to know what's in here. And I'm pointing to our head right now. Like, what's inside this thing that's so close to us that we barely know anything about? Why is it that I can hit my head really, really hard in the back of my brain and I could be blind for the rest of my life? Or I could hit my head so hard in a traumatic accident and I could randomly wake up with a different accent. I could be Chinese. I could have a Chinese accent. You, but you look at me like, you know English, man. Speak English. I'm like, but I have not done this in a long time. I, I've lost the – like there's people. It's called foreign accent syndrome. I start going down deep into rabbit holes about all these things, all these weird, uh, I guess, uh, what do you call it, anomalies of the brain just because like there's so much we don't understand what happens. And I also have a fascination with people with disabilities. Like the fact that at two years old is when you're able to diagnose if a kid has like a, a severe mental disability or being mentally challenged. Do you know about that? I don't see children, remember? Oh, yeah, that's right. You're afraid of them. I don't know why. 
You love cats. I, you think you would be in love with children too. I'm afraid of treating them because I have no training. So I would be a horrible disaster. You don't ever want to dive into the realm of kind of working with kids? No. I mean, so like I spend half of my life getting my PhD, doing research, the other half treating people. Like I really enjoy treating adults. I really enjoy using my communication knowledge for teenagers, adults, and being able to work with that level um, and how, how they start thinking around 13, 14, especially as they get like 17, 18 uh, is probably my favorite. And so like, I, I don't want to work with kids. So I don't feel like I need to. And I got plenty of other stuff to focus on. So when it comes to the amount of time it would take to really make myself competent in that area, it's, it's not worth it to do something that like, I don't feel I would enjoy as much. I think a lot like when it comes to like I'm a big believer that a lot of your stuff stems from like your childhood a little bit like the fact that I can take two twins genetically the exactly the same but put them in two different environments and have them being raised by that from like a young age they could aspire to two different things each one of them the one that's spoon fed could immediately become an awesome person giving all his money back to charity or become a rich like jerk and decide, Hey, like I'm the only thing that matters in this world and anybody's not doing what I want and I don't get my way. It's not right. Or you could take the person that's in a bad life and goes to the most easiest aspect for them to get to, which is doing living a life of crime, doing these types of things, trying to get as much as they can to try, just try and survive. And then they could also be somebody that turns their whole life around and decides my life sucks growing up. I'm going to do everything to make in my power the right way, the moral way, and make it happen. Make it, make my goals come true. I think that's a fascination too. Like I have a fascination with the Rosenhand experiment. I have a fascination with the Marsh Chapel experiment, using drugs to kind of test a certain number of population to see if they can have a type of spiritual awakening. I mean, are you a pro advocate? I wouldn't say when it comes to medically medical drugs that we consider like pills and stuff, but any types of drugs, like a spiritual one, like maybe marijuana or psilocybin mushrooms. Um, if the client is old enough to consent and understand the risks and benefits. And I'm a big believer if it works, it works. So if holding crystals of yourself genuinely helps you, then who am I to say that there's anything wrong? Like even things like we know that it's to the placebo effect, like the placebo effect works for a reason. And um, I try not to judge what people use in order to quote cure or help themselves as long as it's not like actually damaging. So, all right, I guess what I have to ask is like, do you think that, I don't know how to put this. It's dang it. I, I don't, I, I don't know how to put that correctly. I guess you say, <laughs> do you think that it, it really, like, like you're saying, it depends on a case to case scenario. Like, it, like one thing could work for somebody like obviously therapists aren't for anybody, everybody, but if you had to choose one mental illness that fascinates you the most, what would you choose? I really like insomnia. My oh, no like, way. My husband's a, like, that's what he treats. He's training CBTI. And um, so he knows way more than I do. You're talking to a fellow insomniac. There you go. So I think insomnia, especially because I can run in families. I think that's really interesting. I'm like staring at my DSM from across the room trying to think if there's any actual diagnoses that fascinate me. I think 
Restless leg syndrome is really interesting too. That's actually a DSM diagnosis. Um, is that like breaking off into river dance just randomly, or is it the <laughs> fact like I, like I can't control my legs? Or like what? What is? What it was um, so exactly? Like, like restless, like your like your limb, like your body, like your leg usually like needs to move. It can stem from different areas of the leg. A lot of times it's like the SI or S1 joint um, in your hip or right, right behind your hip. Um, but people can have like restless ankles. I mean, it's interesting that it tends to be in legs and there's a lot of really interesting quote cures. Like people put lavender soap under their sheets and swear that that helps and like magnesium, magnesium spray. Um, there are like over the counter kind of like pills you can take that are essentially magnesium and other things. Um, but restless legs, you know, especially because it's diagnosed as a mental illness, I find really interesting because it could like, it's not put as like nerve damage because there's Psycho, psychosomatic components to it, which is like when you're under more stress, things like if there's a part of your body that wants to move. I think it's really interesting. I think it's really weird that like you can consider like some type of mental illness, like ADHD, I do not consider a mental like illness or mental disorder. I consider it like a burden and a curse a little bit just because there are some things that it does stop me from doing. Like when it comes to focusing, I have to try a little bit harder. But when it comes to having energy all the time, kind of probably contributes to a lot of my not sleeping. Like I probably only sleep like maybe a couple hours every couple of days or something because I'm mostly like trying to get stuff done. Like I'm doing so many things at once because I enjoy this. Like my grandma was like, you've been up for three days. Um, I think you've only slept two hours. Are you okay? I'm like, I'm fine. She goes, what do you mean you're okay? Like most people would be dead on the floor right now. I'm like, but well, you don't understand. I've done like 30 podcasts in the past three days. And she's like, oh my God, Robbie, you're not going to get everybody's story. I'm like, I'm going to damn well try. Like, I feel like there's so much I can do with like that. So I try and turn it, look it into a good light, like not being able to sleep. So I could be working on this. Like it's, it's a reason why I was able to get schoolwork done so much. I was always like a week ahead, you know, turning in projects long before they were due, trying to stay ahead of the curve. But then you hear something like schizophrenia. I watched a thing that scared the hell out of me that was this one guy that had schizophrenia where he thought in like two o'clock in the morning he threw a brick through his window and almost like lit his whole house on fire with his family inside because he thought king tut the mummy king tut was outside his door trying to kill him well and if someone who is really believes that like that would be terrifying right like imagine that like i mean my one buddy's mom killed herself because she thought there were like people in the house trying to kill her so she had a gun and then she thought like it, it, was, it was so much stuff i wouldn't be able to explain correctly but like i hear that and I, she, she was doing fine like nobody i didn't even know she had this disorder um not the same buddy that's my buddy that's my therapist another friend of mine and she was she randomly just stopped taking her medication and she just like was getting really, really paranoid, really, really like a lot of stuff that was like really, really weird to me. And then after that happened, I started learning a little bit more about psychology when I started going to college for it. And I was like, whoa, like I, I, I kind of see everything I've, I was totally ignorant to before. And I think that would help a lot with making people more open um, that have mental disorders or have that type of abnormal behavior, um, to, at least to the world today, if people were more educated on what was going on around them, I think it should be taught a lot more in schools, these types of mental illnesses. It shouldn't just be a college class or something. It should be something that's like a requirement, much like you have English, history, all these types of things. We should have a class that like deals with like mental health a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I mean, 
we don't even have like a basic finance class in you know, high school. We don't, like home ec is often taken out. I mean, there's so many just life skills, like call adulting 101, whatever you want. But part of that is taking care of yourself and being able to do like mental health. Like we have physical, like medical health check-ins. Like it'd be great if mental health check-ins were a thing like once or twice a year, just to see how you're doing, especially in the winter when seasonal affective hits. And then in the summer, like five to 10% get the summer seasonal affective. There's lots of situations that are really normal to experience anxiety. It's part of our life, but sometimes it feels overwhelming, even though you are, you know, withstanding it, like it doesn't always feel that way. And the di- the DSM, I mean, diagnoses are just like a word we put to an experience that is not of ourselves, but that is distressing us in some way. So even like symptoms of ADHD, if it doesn't actually distress you, you don't have the diagnosis. Like in order to even experience and like have a mental illness, like one in five Americans every year experience like enough symptoms of a mental illness to be diagnosed. But like, sometimes people aren't super distressed by them they're fine like and so they actually don't qualify for the diagnosis and sometimes those symptoms really do distress people in sometimes multiple areas of their life and they do qualify for mental illness like mental illness is not something that's like super rare like I could get the flu tomorrow and I would have an illness but then in two weeks I may not have the flu anymore and the flu might come back and it's so great to have a word like the flu to know that I'm experiencing something that is not of myself but that is distressing me and mental health diagnoses do the exact same thing. So I think it is helpful for people to be able to be educated on what those means. And if they feel that they might qualify to go talk to someone to find out if that's true or not, because sometimes people come in and they just use like this lay terminology, like I'm really depressed. I'm like, okay, let's identify if you are. And they don't fit the criteria, but it's part of the just nomenclature. And which is fine, because what they're really telling me is like, I'm not feeling my best. Like I'm not feeling well and things are really hard for me. And then sometimes they come in and they have, pretty bad and significant depression and great it is a word for something that is not of themselves that they are experiencing that is causing them distress and when I know what that label is that word is I know what to do with that and so will doctors again ethical good (laughs) clinicians it's weird because I talked to um a nurse practitioner and I've talked to a couple nursing people um about like the hospitals and how understaffed they are like a lot of them like mm-hmm. uh because yeah. of the older generation being uh more of like seeing as nurses and doctors and nowadays that seems like just with all the lawsuits and all these types of understaffed things like it's not a job that's really wanted anymore um around some cases it's obviously different per person depending on where you kind of come from but a lot of like, you know, I was talking to him. He was like, dude, did you know by this, this, like this time next year, there's going to be like a shortage of like 25% of nursing staff to the point where there's only like going to be like 5 million. And he named some type of weird number. I have to go back and listen to it. But it was like, holy crap. And I was like, how does that happen? He just goes, dude, we're understaffed. Sometimes a patient like or a, a doctor has eight or nine patients when they should only be having like four to six. Like, and then they don't sleep. Like when, when they, they have to just basically check, make sure everybody's not dying and then they get to leave. Like when their shift is over, like it's all about making them stable for the next person. There's so much, I guess, pers- personal stuff that is lost along translation. Like a doctor just looks at your chart now and doesn't get to know anything about you. Next thing you know, they prescribe something that you could be allergic to without, it wasn't labeled on the chart, and, but they don't know that about you. So next thing you know, bam. And I'm like, that makes sense because a lot of times, like they ask me the first question, are you allergic to anything? That's it. I don't get a story or I don't get a conversation with the guy that's supposed to be treating me or the woman that's supposed to be treating me. They just walk out of the room and go on to the next patient. I'm like, they don't have the personal time to deal with 
each individual person anymore. And it's like, that really sucks. And the fact that the nursing is becoming uh, like a less applied for job. And it's like the statistics are going down for the number of people that are going to be nurses next year and a number of understaffness you are. Imagine a tragic accident that happens in the area. Everybody goes to the hospital. When you hurt, you're good to the hospital. But imagine if they can't treat you ethically or can't treat you right because they can't have that couple minutes just to be able to talk to you. I just, I, I, it, it boggles my mind that I think, I think we're worried about the wrong things in the world today. I think we definitely need to be focused on like these jobs that are seen as, uh, I guess like it, uh, being a doctor, you can get sued over anything. It's, it's, it's so weird. I think people are becoming a little bit too sensitive in an area we shouldn't be sensitive to. I think like a lot, everyone's just looking for money or we're just looking for a way to get our voice out there and do these types of things but it turns to be in the wrong way like a lot of people are more in line to sue their doctor or practitioner because of mistreatment or something like that i'm like he wasn't mistreating you he's understaffed trying to deal with and obviously it works on a different case-to-case basis but from just talking with people deal with the medical industry and deal with these types of like emergency uh, nurse assistant jobs where like they're dealing with people that come right into the emergency room and they got to go immediately right into action. I'm like, it, it, it's so hard to have so many things that you have to worry about when it depends on a case to case basis. And it's hard to focus and narrow it down. And that's what makes therapy hard because you're constantly learning. You're constantly trying to diagnose, but you actually get a chance if you're doing one-on-one to get an experience and get a connection relationship going. But at the same time, like so many mental disorders fall in line between each other. Like a lot of them, like sometimes it's just one little thing they don't have that makes it something completely different than when you thought it was. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's our job to be aware of that. And a lot of people come in for mental treatment, but something that isn't diagnosable, like grief, for example, it's a Z code, but it's not like a mental illness. And we we know how to treat that. I mean, again, if you got the training for that and things, but sometimes like the actual diagnostic, um, like, or the diagnosis doesn't always matter. If we like know the symptoms, again, if you're a good clinician, you can still be working on those. And the diagnosis itself does change because the person in front of you changes. And so the next week they come in, they may not qualify for a diagnosis anymore. Or sometimes like they might take some time to feel comfortable with you enough to share some of the other symptoms that they are experiencing. And that's pretty common too. And that's to be expected. Nobody owes us their story. No one owes us everything all at once. And so we get a lot of time with it. We're really lucky. We get, I mean, I do 15 minute sessions, sometime up to an hour and a half. I know some clinicians do shorter ones, like 45. I've heard the shortest ever is like 30, but they're like hyper, like they they have like different purposes, like their check-ins, like different things like that. Um, but I mean, that, that's our job. It's, I mean, if somebody does qualify for a diagnosis, we should be diagnosing. We should be telling them if they get a diagnosis and it shouldn't be a surprise. Like we should be really transparent and clear about why we believe that's so and like allow them to, like I have all my clients, I call it um, a collaborative diagnosing. So if I believe somebody like hits a diagnostic criteria or something, I'll bring out my DSM and say, hold up your finger for everything that does you feel describes you. And let's say they have five symptoms out of nine, which is what they need. And I'll say, okay, well, you fit the criteria for major depressive disorder, like mild type, whatever it is, or with anxious features. Um, have, have, what do you know about if you, what have you heard about depression? Tell me what you think about hearing that. And then I get to destigmatize anything that they hear right there. Cause it is my job. If they have a stigma on something, it is my job to have like a real discussion with them about where they heard that, what they believe. And so when they walk out of that office, like 
that diagnosis, just like if I told them they have high blood pressure or the flu or something like that, it's not like a death sentence. It is something of like, here's something you're experiencing. Here is a plan that we can do together to like work on this. And do you feel up to that? And like, when they no longer fit that, I believe it's my job to tell them they no longer do. Like, I think that so many people, like, for example, if you get a sleeping medication, you're diagnosed with insomnia on your chart at a medical office, and doctors often won't tell you, okay, I'm going to diagnose you with insomnia. Or, like, if you have a fear of flying and you just need a Xanax for a plane, like, they got to diagnose you with panic disorders or generalized anxiety disorder in order for your insurance, if you use it, to pay for that medication. So, anytime you use any psychotropic medication of any kind, you have to have a clinical diagnosis attached to it if you use an insurance. And so, the our field sucks at that. Like I'm, I'm a very strong advocate for full transparency and collaborative diagnosis and collaborative treatment plans, which collaborative treatment plans are called patient-centered care plans are becoming more popular. But May said earlier, like we need people who are invested in the system. And like I said earlier, there's infinite number of causes that we can put our money and our time and our passion behind and it's impossible for us to be behind all of them all the time and be educated enough to really delve into these but there are people in the academic and the medical community and the therapy community like myself who really are advocating for these things and it's, it's unfortunate as with anything takes time because we are up against managed care companies insurance companies hospitals i mean of charges like it, it's a fight that a lot of us are willing to make and it's a hill that we will die on um, but definitely the more people that are aware of it, the better. Do you think that, do you see uh, hopes for mental health, I guess, being more, um, I guess, l less active in the world in the future? Or do you see it becoming more of a problem? Um, I think people are a lot more open about it than they used to be. I mean, even like weird things can blessing and a curse of like memes, talking about anxiety, depression, things like that, like kind of poking fun at themselves and satire. like. I think that younger generations, I mean, are way more open about having a therapist. I think there is more anxiety or there's more anxiety around new things, but the fact is people are being way more open about their anxiety, about their postpartum depression, PTSD. And I think with that awareness really helps people to feel comfortable to reach out and ask for help. I think that patients and clients need to have the empowerment that they have the autonomy that they're with a bad therapist bad doctor like they can change it like they can go to somebody they don't owe us anything if we're not working for them um, in a way that they need and I, I i honestly see like my field is just getting better we need more and more clinicians like we like people keep graduating from you know your psychotherapy programs get that master's get that phd and um, i think that because the stigma is lessening very slowly um, it is just helping the accessibility and like de-shaming the reaching out for mental health services. So I think there will be mental illness always, just like there will always be the flu. There will always be whatever. It's just going to look different. As technology changes, we have to change with it and our brains are trying to adapt. So there's going to be, I mean, the DSM probably in 20 years, there's going to be things that we don't even think would be a problem right now. And so there will people to help with that. Do you think if I had to ask you one question or just say one thing to someone out there that might be dealing with a mental disorder or might be feeling just down on their luck and feeling like it, there's no out, there's no outway, what would you say to them? I would say it is never too early to reach out to someone for help, but it can be too late. 
Um, even if you think like things aren't that bad, but you're starting to feel that you're stuck in habits, patterns, um, thought, uh, or especially thought patterns that are not helpful to you, that hurt you, that do not uplift you, like reach out. I mean, it really doesn't hurt um, to start just trying, finding someone you feel comfortable with. You don't have to go every week. Like there's really no process, like you have to do this many sessions or anything like that. If you have a good therapist, they're going to trust that you know what you need and you need it. And they're going to push you to reach whatever goal that you have. Um, but we're not very scary. Uh, I don't think so anyways. Maybe, maybe there are some scary ones out there. I mean, I did do a paper on bad therapy. There are some bad therapists, but um, when you look for referrals, go to your friends, see who they see, who they like, go to your doctor, who do they trust, like find people you trust and find out who they trust. That's probably going to be where you get, you'll find the therapist that's right for you. Well, I want to say, I really appreciate you being able to talk to me on my podcast and just enlighten everybody a little bit about your, your life, um, your passion, and also how you're basically doing the world such a service by helping people that feel like they can't be helped. It's, it's something that, you know, anybody can take away from this and be like, wow, that's like, there's people out there, there are special people out there that are willing to listen, willing to put in the time and effort to be able to help somebody who's in dire need, who feels like they just need someone to say hello to them. And I really appreciate you coming on to my podcast, Corey, because it was, it was enlightening for me too, because I mean, I probably sound like an idiot trying to go off on diagnoses and stuff, but. I'm telling you, it's, it, it was an experience just hearing it from someone that's doing it and something I wanted to do for a while, and I just ended up falling out of it. I might end up picking it back up. If you do, let me know, because you're curious about people, and that's really number one, right? To right. want to know about people's lives and experiences. Well, like I said, thanks again for being on my podcast. Is there any places you want people to go look up and try and find, or any message you want to leave to everyone out there? <laughs> I'm like, I don't have much social media i do have if you wanted to go to communication and connection.com that is my website with me and my team and you can look at how wonderful they are if you wanted to and if you're in the kansas city area missouri area you're welcome to reach out but i don't know if i have any like wise words to leave with anybody except that like you know better about your life no one else does because like you live in there you know whether you are your body or of your body i don't know but um I imagine that you probably haven't ever really trusted your gut and regretted it. So in situations where you're not sure what to do, like try really try to listen to the part of you that is older, wiser, and knows better because like you'll probably end up making choices that benefit you in the end. The only person that knows you is yourself. Oh yeah. I, 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 like I said, I appreciate you being on the podcast, Corey. It was awesome having you and uh, stay tuned for the next episode of out of the blank podcast.